On this same Sunday, uh, two years ago, the date then was December 2nd, and I know this is November 29th, but it was the same Sunday of the year two years ago that I shared a quote from the Scottish theologian, professor, author, and pastor Sinclair Ferguson. And if it's all right with you, uh, I'd like to read that quote for you again as we begin tonight. He said this, Christmas has become a secularized and commercialized season, but there's an old Latin phrase that's translated, the abuse of something shouldn't be allowed to destroy its proper use. So the best cure, he says, is for Christians to celebrate the real meaning of Christmas. Speaking for myself, he says, the more I have been able to hear or preach about Christ's coming, the more help I have received to focus on what really matters during December. Otherwise, I'm swimming against the tide with a Scrooge-like spirit. And in parentheses, he says, bah, humbug. And if so, I not only have no joy in celebrating the incarnation, I lose all sense of joy completely. No, what I need is what the great Scottish theologian Thomas Thomas Chalmers called the expulsive power of a new affection. Knowing more about Jesus and His coming brings a joy that is both deeper and more lasting than all the tinsel and glitter celebrations around us. Now, it doesn't take much, as you know, to fall into that state of uh, bah humbug anymore. When you think about the commercial onslaught of Christmas that begins not in November but October, and this year actually began in September, and not late September but early September. And when we think about the idolatry and the lack of contentment within our own hearts that is typically and blatantly on display for all to see, not just the day after, but the evening of the day that we pause to give thanks for all that's ours. And of course, the real meaning of Christmas anymore is being defined by cable movie channels. And they are encouraging us and calling us to believe in the season rather than the reason for the season. And it's in that context that we arrive where we do in our study of Luke, which is purposeful, by the way. Um, And we come to these two chapters so that we can celebrate the Incarnation so that we can commemorate Christ's first coming as well as look forward to his second. And I want you to know and and realize as we walk through uh, these chapters and in the Christmas story that you need to know up front that the next four sermons may or may not be the typical 30 to 35 Minutes that is our custom, and I may or may not provide the two to three or maybe four to five um, takeaways. That's because I want to allow the story, if it takes less time, we want to allow the story to 
to speak. And I also want us to understand that the story itself is what we should take away. And so what I would even encourage you to do over these next few weeks is to set down your pens and your bulletins, and for you note-takers that must do so, you can listen later this week, but that you would sit in these moments and simply open your Bibles and follow along, and listen to the story of Jesus and His coming. And it's my desire, and it's going to be my prayer in a moment, that we would allow God, and, or, or that we would ask God, not allow Him to, but we would ask God to grant all of us that expulsive power of a new affection. As we're reminded and maybe even learned something new about this story, about our Savior and Lord, my prayer is that it will bring a joy that is deeper and longer lasting than anything else we do this season. So before we begin, let's go to the Lord and ask him to do just that. Would you bow your heads with me? Uh, Father, we come now to the preaching of your word that is authoritative and inerrant and sufficient. And I would ask that you would, in these moments, speak to our heart and use the room that you create by driving the doubt of dark away to plant and cultivate a new affection for Jesus. May we come to know more about Him and His coming. And may it bring a joy that is both deep and lasting. Use me in these moments as you see fit for the sake of Christ and His church. And I pray these things in His name. Amen. Well, at some point after um, her visit with Gabriel... We read in Luke 1 that Mary leaves and travels as fast as she can to go see Elizabeth. Um, and why she goes, we're not really told, but we can gather that it's possible that because Gabriel has said, your cousin Elizabeth and her pregnancy is a sign for you and your pregnancy, that she wanted to go and to see the sign. What we do know is that she left soon after Gabriel had spoken to her, because if you'll remember, Elizabeth was six months pregnant when Gabriel appeared to Mary, and we read at the end of this passage that she was with, Mary was with Elizabeth for three months, and it appears that she left before John was born. So we do the math, and we realize that she must have left almost immediately. And when she arrives, she, of course, greets her cousin, as anyone would when they arrive to see family. But it doesn't take long before both of the women realize that this isn't just a normal family gathering. Something more significant is taking place here. And while we don't know what Mary said, we do know how, um, we do know what happened in response. In verse 41, Luke writes, When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. Now, it could have been dismissed as a coincidence if 
Gabriel had not said what he had said to both ladies, and if, uh, if Elizabeth had not been filled with the Holy Spirit. But because Gabriel had spoken to both ladies, and because Elizabeth had been filled with the Spirit, we know that it wasn't a coincidence, and she explains that it's anything but. In verse 43, she says, When the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And the question we ask is, why? Why would John leap with joy? And we go back to our story last week and we remember that in verse 15 it says that John was filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. This would have been two weeks ago. And so what we have is for the first time, John does what he had been created and called to do and that was point others to Jesus. From the womb, John is announcing the coming of Christ. And he is making ready for the Lord a people prepared. That's verse 17. And what's interesting is that it's his mother who is the first of that people. And look at how she responds in verse 42. She exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. She lets out this great shout of praise. She says, Mary, you're blessed. God has shown favor to you. He's, his favor is upon you. He has turned his face toward you. And that baby within you, too, that baby is blessed that favor is upon your child. And of course, we aren't certain, again, but it is possible that this may be the moment in which Mary realized she was pregnant. Right? When she's listening to Gabriel, we, we read and we understood that she believed that her, the, the conception was imminent, but not, necessary, not necessarily immediate. So while she's come to, to see the sign that Gabriel spoke of, it's, it is possible that while there, she came to realize and it was confirmed that she, at that moment, was with child. But Elizabeth's response is more than simply excitement about Mary and her being a new mother and the child that was to come, as far as just mothers and children are concerned. This was a joy and a praise that was directed toward the Lord specifically. Because again, the Holy Spirit is bearing witness with Elizabeth's spirit. And Elizabeth knew that this wasn't just any child. And in verse 44, she says, and, and why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Notice she doesn't respond in the flesh with jealousy or resentment at Mary's arrival. I mean, we have, right, they're human. And so we have to think that she could have, at that moment, lashed out at Mary. Why? Because Mary would have been taking the limelight and the attention away from Elizabeth. Elizabeth had been waiting for years and had actually given up hope of having a child. But now the women in her village are planning a baby blessing for her. And up to this point, 
All the attention was on her, and more than likely, she liked it. But rather than respond negatively, Elizabeth responds by the Spirit. Her response is one of humility. She understands that her child, because of what Gabriel has said, her child is going, who is going to be great before the Lord, is going to point others to Mary's child, who himself is great because he is the Lord. She also responds and, and acknowledges that she is in need. She's a sinner. In need of salvation. And that Savior was in Mary's womb. Mary was carrying the long-awaited, promised, anticipated Messiah. And Elizabeth knew she did not deserve, nor had she merited a visit by Mary and this child, nor would she deserve or merit what this child would secure on her behalf. She got it. And she was humble and humbled by, but also very grateful for this encounter. And she responded in a very natural way, and in the most natural way you would expect someone to who understood who the baby really was. And she is the first. And she sets an example for everyone who follows, including you and me. When we understand who Jesus is and we profess Jesus as Lord, our response should be humility, joy, and praise. It is only fitting. But notice that Elizabeth's response doesn't stop there. Again, her pregnancy was a sign for Mary, and so Mary came to see. But Mary also has come to hear. And, and so Elizabeth, this is a perfect opportunity for Elizabeth to assure her, her being so young, right, to, to grant wisdom and to encourage her young cousin. And she would need, like anybody would, to be encouraged in the midst of the circumstances that she found herself in. And notice what Elizabeth says in verse 45. She says, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. She said, Mary was blessed. She said, Mary was, Mary was experiencing God's grace and favor. She had believed everything that Gabriel had said. He had said certain things were going to happen. She believed that everything he said was in fact going to happen. And Elizabeth looks at her and says, because you've believed, the Lord has blessed you. You've believed and the Lord has blessed you. You're walking by faith and not by sight. And, and then Elizabeth herself is praising the Lord for what Mary or how Mary has responded. And we can imagine, as those words of Mary's joy and praise, are as Elizabeth's words of joy and praise are washing over her, Mary, we, we see, is moved to respond. She cannot remain silent. 
And she does so by putting together um, a hymn, a poem, a hymn to be sung. We call it the Magnificat, which is Latin for the word magnifies. And if you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 2, which I put in the front of your bulletin as a preparation for worship tonight, if you go back and read that, you'll see that, it, that Mary's song sounds very much like Hannah's song. But it's not just Hannah's song, as one commentator has pointed out. And if you will look through your cross-references there in your own Bibles, you'll see that, that the Bible attests to the fact that it, um, she, her hymn alludes to or quotes several verses from Deuteronomy, uh, 1 Samuel 1 and 2, Job, Psalms, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Micah, uh, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. She knew her Bible. And as I mentioned to the children, she had been catechized. She had apparently been raised to know and to understand and, and to have a grasp of and to appreciate and even apply the Word of God. It had been taught to her. It, it had been sung to her. She had sung along. And again, what was in her came out. She was brought to respond. She had to respond, and what was in her came out. And in verse 46, she begins to sing, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He has looked upon the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for He is mighty, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him generation to generation. It's as if Mary hears Elizabeth say, you, you are blessed because you've believed the Lord, and, and Mary responds and says, how, how can I not believe? I can do nothing but magnify and rejoice in the Lord, in, with everything that I am. Because I'm not worthy of His favor. I'm meek and lowly. I'm a sinner in need of salvation. I'm but a slave. I have no power and prestige and position to speak of, but I, I'm nothing but a slave. I'm his slave, yet people will call me blessed? Why will people call me blessed? And she says, it has nothing to do with me. It's only because of what he has done. She, she says, he is mighty. He is holy. I haven't done great things for him. He has done great things for me. But he hasn't done, he hasn't just done great things for me. He has done great things for people in the past and in the present and in the future. He has done great things. He is doing great things. He will do great things. Why? Because his mercy is not just for me. His mercy is for those in the past and the present and the future. His mercy abides with his people. And then in verse 51, she does this thing that's, that's not just fascinating, it's, it's amazing. 
right? This, this whole story is amazing from beginning to end, and this is one more example of how amazing it is. And she begins singing of things that God would do in the future through this child within her, and that those things are so sure, it's as if they've already happened. Basically, we have Mary speaking in prophetic language. And she says, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. And all of that can be boiled down to two things the Lord is going to do. He is going to humble the proud and he's going to exalt the humble. We could say that another way, that he would, he would lower the lofty and lift the lowly. And he would do that on behalf of God's people. And that would take place nationally. It would take place, well, it would take place on a national level and a political level. Um, it would take place on a governmental level and a societal level. It would take place on a religious level. And it would, be, it would take place systemically as well as individually. But we must be clear that this isn't, Mary does not intend for this to be, nor does the Lord intend for this to be some type of political or social justice manifesto. Because while there are implications and applications that can be made along those lines, we must understand that she is speaking on a spiritual level. She's talking about the spiritually proud and the spiritually humble. It's the poor, uh, the poor who are blessed are the pious poor. In other words, the poor who are blessed are those who are poor in spirit and who admit their spiritual bankruptcy. The rich that she is speaking of are those who are banking on, pun intended, banking on their own self-righteousness to earn or merit their salvation, and they do not realize the own, their own debt that they have accumulated or accrued. She's speaking of the hungry who are filled, and those who are filled are those who hunger for righteousness, and they're satisfied. She's speaking of those who are lifted. Those who are lifted are humble in heart and admit their need and dependence upon a Savior. But notice she's not done. She's, she's almost done, but she's not quite. In verses 54 and 55, she identifies the profundity of everything she has sung to this point. She says, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Again, Mary has been taught the scriptures. She knows her Bible. So Mary believed God because she understood that this was, this child was the long-awaited fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant 
He was the promised seed through whom all the nations of the world would be blessed. She understood that he would be the one, in the words of Hebrews, who would mediate a better covenant that was enacted upon better promises and would make the Mosaic law obsolete. And I love how Philip Ryken puts this. He says, The visitation was not for Mary and Elizabeth alone, but for their sons. John was the last greatest prophet of the old covenant, the one called to announce the coming of the Christ. Jesus was the Christ, the Lord of the new covenant. So when Mary met Elizabeth, the covenants connected. Both sons were joined under one roof. And like the electrical contact between two power stations, the results were explosive. There was a spontaneous outburst of exultant joy as the old covenant greeted the new. Well, brothers and sisters, it is my hope and prayer that this Advent season, during this Advent season, that in the midst of all the decorating that has already begun or maybe even finished, all the baking that will take place, all the music and the shopping and the sappy movies and the potential Christmas programs, and the reduced, um, the parties and get-togethers that will be reduced in size and all of the emotional highs and lows of the season. I pray that all of those things, in the midst of all those things, don't allow the noise and the chaos, and even the abuse of the season by others to drown out the joy and praise of Elizabeth and Mary. All right, John leaped for joy. Elizabeth shouted for joy at the conception of Christ. How much more should we leap and shout for joy at his crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. Mary's song should be our song. Because in Paul's words, we are spiritual children of Abraham. And he can do and could do nothing greater than what he has already done for us in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. We too can sing great things he has, and we do sing actually, great things he has taught us, great things he has done, and great our rejoicing in Jesus, our son, his son. And let's also use the reminder that comes this time of year very naturally and obviously that we should, we should never leave the poor to fend for themselves or the oppressed to fight for themselves. That's not just a call for December, that's a call for year round. And, and to ignore the needs of those around us would put us in a category of prideful that, well, it would put us in a category of people that God may need to humble. And yet let's also remember 
that while the poor may be more receptive to the gospel because of their material needs and how they abound, and how the rich may be less receptive to the gospel because they believe they have all of their needs met or their needs are at least few and far between, there are those who are materially poor who are spiritually proud. And there are those who are materially rich who have admitted their spiritual bankruptcy and in need of a Savior. And that's why our primary message and ministry is one of impartial proclamation. Because the fight that we are in the midst of is for hearts and souls. As one commentator put it, no deed is more powerful or heroic than rescuing humanity from sin. No act is more gracious than God's extension of mercy through His powerful, faithful, compassionate hand. And that's our message. The gospel of the Lord Jesus. If you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have not repented of your sin and you have not turned to Him in faith and are not looking to Him for salvation, then may I encourage you to do so Tonight, sometime this season, there are a lot of competing voices that are vying for your attention. There are false teachers who are, who are trying to grab your ear. And I would urge you, encourage you to, to listen to the, the praise and the joy of both Elizabeth and Mary, but even more importantly, to listen to the voice of the one who was the source of their joy and the object of their praise, that being Jesus. And for all of us, well, let, let me say this, because, because you are looking for and striving after abundant life, but it's Christ who said that I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. The abundant life that you are looking for and striving after will only be found in Him. And for all of us this season, right, it can be very fun and, and enjoyable, as it should be, but it also can be very hard and disappointing. And probably more so this year than in years past. It's always difficult in some respect. You know, there are memories that are both happy and sad. And some will be entering into this holiday. They just came out of Thanksgiving and now they're moving into Christmas, the first holidays without a, a beloved family member. And, and houses this year, as was already the case over Thanksgiving, but houses at Christmas are going to be less full. We had, we had one experience Thanksgiving at home alone because of COVID. Changed plans. And so the gamut of emotions and circumstances and experiences be all over the board. And, and again, never more amplified than this year during this coronavirus. And so I think we're all in dire need of a reminder We need to remember Jesus. 
Let's remember Jesus, whose birth we celebrate this season. He is, to quote Paul, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. Brothers and sisters, he was promised. He came. He is coming again. And may you and may I, may all of us experience the deep abiding joy that comes from knowing him, not only this season, but throughout the year. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Well, God, by your spirit and grace, would you allow and enable us to receive the word that has been preached with faith and love? We ask you to lay it up on our hearts that we might practice it in our lives. For your glory, for our good, and for the sake of Christ and his church. Amen.